are in Judges chapter 7 this morning. Continuing on, we started Judges before the end of the year. And we're back, baby, with Gideon. Judges chapter 7. And I'm going to pick it up and read beginning in verse 12. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. Stay with me. You're going to love this. In verse 12 of Judges 7. It says, now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. He said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. And when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. Lord, you do all things well. There's no question. But you are so unexpected. We never know how you're going to do what you're going to do, which makes us a very exciting relationship. And it increases trust. And Lord, thank you that you know how to build faith in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, with such a a diverse group of people gathered here this morning, each one of us comes to you differently. Each one of us is unique in, in our approach. Each one of us needs to be tended, and you are the perfect guardian of our souls. You are the one who knows what each one of us needs. And that goes for the easy things as well as the difficult things, the the joys as well as the challenges. You know us so well. And Father, I pray that you would relieve us of trying to understand or figure out why that guy or that woman or that person over there, why they have it different than we do. And help us just to understand and know you love us each so much that you tend to each one of us as we need, as you see fit. I am so thankful you have tended to me the way you have in my life. I pray, Lord, this morning as we open up and study this great battle and this amazing victory that we would understand and comprehend more of your love for us, more of your mercy, more of your character, Lord Jesus, and more of the victory that awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen. 43 years ago, this coming May, the best, the absolute best, bar none, unquestionably, of all the Star Wars movies made its debut. (laughs) The Empire Strikes Back, right? We can argue about that later, David. (laughs) Following an amazing opening scene, you may recall this if you've seen the movie, if you haven't, Shame on you. The amazing opening scene, Han, Leah, Chewbacca, and C-3PO make their escape from the ice planet of Hoth. You remember that? They get out as the Empire is closing in, and then they, they're, they're airborne, but immediately they're being attacked by TIE fighters. And Han tries to make the jump to light speed, and he can't do it because it's the Millennium Falcon. I mean, who are we kidding? It can't fly. And so he's trying to fix it while they're in flight, and all of a sudden there's a bang on the side of the ship. I was like, what was that? From the cockpit, he hears Leah yell, Han, get in here. And so he goes running in there. Come on, Chewie. And the two of them go into the cockpit. Yes, I just watched it again last week. And, <laughs> and he, he gets in there, and they're coming into an asteroid field. And he says, Chewie, give me the coordinates. And Leah says, you're not going into the asteroid field, are you? And Han says, they'd be crazy to follow us, wouldn't they? <laughs> Leah says, you don't have to do this to impress me. C-3PO says, sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to one. And Han says, and say it with me now, never tell me the odds. (laughs) Never tell me the odds. I love that scene. Let me ask you a question. Was life in 2022 more like a calm cruise through outer space or a jarring ride through an asteroid field for you? What would you compare it to? As a younger man, um, I used to bite into the idea of the new year. 
I don't buy it anymore. My wife has had that influence on me. Cheryl has never liked New Year's Eve. Oh, she'll stay up and she'll play games and she'll say Happy New Year at noon, she'll, or at, at midnight, <laughs> at noon. She'll even kiss me, which is wonderful. But then she's done. She's like, I just, it's the one holiday I just don't understand. We're looking for this new thing to happen. We go, Happy New Year, woohoo! And it's the same as it was five minutes ago. And nothing really has changed. And she's had an influence because resolutions and restarts and hope for a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Ultimately, we start to realize as we live and move through this life that we are hanging our hopes on an unlikely possibility. It's called hoping against hope that this year is gonna be it. This year is gonna be better than last year. So what I wanna do this morning is let all the Eeyores and puddle grums, glums of the world unite and gather to say, if we're starting off on the dark side this morning, it's because it's gonna be dark on that side too. In this world, this is an unusual start for a message, Bill. In this world, 2023 is not better than 2022 simply because it's 2023. And it's not gonna be necessarily better, so don't be disappointed. Odds are, don't tell me the odds, but odds are 2023 will not be better. Never tell God the odds. Never tell God the odds. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, chapter 32, verse 17, said, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Never tell God the odds. Jesus is standing with the apostles. He's watching a, a wealthy young man for whom Jesus, the Bible tells us, felt a genuine love, but he's watching this young man walk away from him. And he said to his disciples, Matthew 19, 23, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished because it flew in the face of their theology. And they said, well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, Never tell God the odds. All things are possible with God. So remember, with every turn of the year, Romans 13, 11 tells us, now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. This year may very well be your best year ever. Not because of the year, but because Jesus comes and gets us. And I'm holding out for that one. That is not hoping against hope because that kind of hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we have this great hope that stands before us and whether it's you know December 31st or January 1st or 2022 or 23 or 24 or whatever, it's, it's the fact that Jesus is coming that keeps us going forward. Now with all that in mind, we are back on track with the guardians of the unruly. It's what we're calling our study in the book of Judges. And we're back to the fifth judge, Gideon. Remember Gideon, last time we saw him, he was flipping the fleece, right? And I said at the time, not so much necessarily for himself as for his army, that they could see God was in this. Gideon knew God was. Gideon had the call, but he's flipping the fleece. And if you read the passage, all indications are the army was there. They were gathered around all together. Everyone recognized there was dew on the ground and not on the fleece, or there was dew on the fleece and not on the ground. We saw Gideon there, and that's where we left him. And he wanted his army to know God was in the fight, to trust that as well. Verse one of chapter seven gives us the location of their bivouac. Then Yerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. This description is great. 
It is unmistakable. It is a landmark even in Israel. We know right where this was, right where this happened. We stop there every tour. We worship here. There's a grassy area, big grassy area, huge park-like area with the spring running through there. The spring of Herod, still there, still water. And we meet and gather there and we will worship there. And we recall this very story. In fact, if you're going in May, you're gonna need to hear this this morning and then forget because I'm just gonna teach you the same thing again when we get there. But we sit there at the spring of Herod and, and, and enjoy Sometimes, only one time it wasn't enjoyable. There was a massive festival of Israelis, as far as the eye could see, spreading out throughout this entire huge park, grassy area. We're over on these picnic tables. Rachel was with us at the time, trying to lead worship. We could not hear each other sing. I told the story like this. All right, Gideon, Judges chapter seven, verse one, open your Bibles. And I'm shouting just so they can hear because they had speakers and the Israeli music and it was just obnoxious <laughs> and a great experience, you know. But normally there, it's very quiet, it's very peaceful. You can hear the water running through this spring. And the name of the spring is very much a part of the story before us. This is a vivid story, extremely vivid, even in the telling. And I love the Bible for that. I love the way the Spirit does that. But it tells us in verse one, maybe your Bible says the spring of Herod, the word Herod, spring of Herod, is in Herod. In Herod, E-N-H-A-R-O-D, in Herod, and it means the spring of trembling, which is the perfect name for the gathering of this particular army and their particular leader. Do you remember when the angel of the Lord first found Gideon? He was in a wine press beating out the wheat. Now, you beat out a wheat Where? on a threshing floor up high, not in a wine press down low hiding out. He finds Gideon somewhat shaky or trembling. Remember his nickname, Yerubal, it literally means contender with Baal. Why? Well, his dad gave him the nickname because he and about 10 of his buddies went out and they tore down bravely the altars of Baal and Asherah at night when no one was looking. So we have a sense of a trembling nature, perhaps, in Gideon. I don't know. I don't think that he was fearful. I mean, to do what he's about to do and to go where he goes and to listen to the Lord, it's gonna take some courage that, well, the Lord gives him. But what about his army? This is a trembler's story. So if you're a trembler, this one's for you. There at the spring of trembling, there was plenty of anxiety to go around. Verse two tells us, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful saying, my own power has delivered me. Literally, my own hand has delivered me. I had a hand in it. You ever say that? I had a hand in that. And God says, you're not gonna have a hand in this. You cannot say this. Uh, verse three, the Lord continues, now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, hared. So it's the same that we get from Herod and Herod, spring of trembling. Those who are afraid, whoever's afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Now, don't read it like an old Bible story. Put yourself there. 22,000 of your army is now departing. You were already a small army. You were already against incalculable odds, and now more than two-thirds are out of there. And this is what the Lord calls for. And this is absolutely the opposite of the way that we think. And I won't even put that on you. It's opposite of the way that I think. I think I need more people. And the Lord says, no, you need me. I need more, Lord. No, no, you need me. We say we need more helpers in children's, right, Cam? We need more musicians on the worship team. We need more volunteers in our care ministry, more servants in security. No, we need Jesus. And we need to trust in him. We were having this funny conversation up here um, with the guys before we started worship. 
Just, just about how, you know, what if we really trusted the Lord? You know, we're having this conversation, talking a little bit about giving and just saying, you know, I, you can't outgive God. What if we really believe that? Oh, I'm sorry, that's crazy. Okay, I'm gonna take my entire paycheck and drop it in and see what he does. Who's gonna do that? And if you're one who would do that, please come see me. <laughs> we, we, we really, our faith goes about that far and then we stop and go, yeah, but <laughs> that's crazy. This is a crazy story. Two-thirds have now left. And as we're always saying, we need more, we need more. Listen, let me be really clear about this. God plus one is not a majority. It's everything. Even God plus one is a majority is, is limited thinking. A majority, more than, than, than the total. No, God plus one is everything. You trust in him, you follow him, you believe in him. He's got this. Never tell God the odds. All these ministries that we have here at the bridge or in other churches, places to plug in. Yes, they're wonderful. Yes, we enjoy them. Yes, we do obviously want people to be involved, but all of it is absolutely meaningless without Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, we're just spinning our wheels. Never tell God the odds. Now, I'll tell you the odds if you'd like to hear them. As if in anticipation of the trembling taking place at this spring, do you know that God aforehand, he directed the faint-hearted to go home? He actually wrote this into Torah law. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse eight, the officers shall speak to the people and say to them, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. You will never find that in a military manual. Anyone who's uh, a little nervous going into this battle, go ahead and pack up your stuff and head on home. We don't, we don't need you here. No, we need every person. And so 22,000 departed in Herod. Again, more than two-thirds of the army. Why were they so afraid? Well, odds were it was gonna be a bad year. They were facing 135,000 Midianites who were encamped just across the valley. You'll see that over in chapter eight, verse 10. When you run the numbers, you discover that 135,000 Midianites, even to 32,000 Israelites, is four to one odds. For every Israelite, four Midianites. That's where this started, but then God gets involved. And he starts to whittle it all down. And now he has just immediately whittled the odds down to 14 to 1. 14 Midianite soldiers to one Israelite. As far as God was concerned, however, that's still too many. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he, that is Gideon, brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps as well as everyone who kneels to drink. These are the two groups, the lappers and the kneelers. I love the word lap here in the Hebrew. We point this out often. It is the word yalok. Doesn't that sound like lapping? Everyone who yaloks. Yalok, 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 yalok. <laughs> it's as a dog laps. That's literally what it means, to lick up or lap up like a dog. Yalok, yalok. By the way, dogs are weird. You know when their tongues come out and they lap up the water? They're not scooping it up and bringing it in this way. They're scooping it up and bringing it in underneath. Freaky. <laughs> Verse six. Now the number of those who lapped, who yelloked, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go home, each man to his home. Remember, there were 10,000. And so the 300 men 
took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. So much has been made out of this. Maybe you've heard teachings about this before, the difference between the yolokers and the kneelers, right? The lappers and the kneelers, those, the lappers, the yolokers, they're the ones who drink with their heads up, right? They're alert, they're steely-eyed missile men, every one of them, ready for war, ready to fight. Those are the ones I want, the Lord says. And then, of course, on the other hand, you've got those who drink head down, you know, heedless, careless, ill-trained. So you want yolokers, you want lappers, do you? Josephus claimed it was exactly the opposite, that God chose the lappers because they were the least likely choice. A bunch of lapping mongrels. These, these were the dogs of the group. So send home the rest, keep the dogs. So which one is it? Listen. Neither. It's neither one. It has nothing to do with the temperament or the training of lappers or kneelers. Nothing whatsoever. If you look back at verse, where is it? <laughs> at verse four, halfway down, the Lord says, therefore it shall be of him of he whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you and he shall not go. The point is God's choice. It is not the temperament or training of the people. Note this, a couple of things to jot down this morning. God chooses whom he uses. God chooses whom he uses. It is not based on your personality. It is not based on your talent. It's not based on your potential. It's not based on your capability. Well, God chose me because I could do this, that, and the other. No, God chose you because God chose you. All these other things he's given to you, given to me, talents, capabilities, you know, uh, the ability to do the things that we can do. He's given us the personality that we have. God's done all that for his purposes, but he doesn't choose us based on that. He chooses us based on his choice, and his choice is always right. I've told you before, it, it makes no sense to me that a kid who grew up with a cleft palate would spend his life talking. But that's what God chose. That was not my choice. It was his. God chooses whom he uses, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. Or think about Gideon himself, back in chapter 6, verse 34. It tells us that the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Came upon Gideon. You gotta keep that one in mind. I'm gonna come back to that. But turning your Bibles over just for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter one. 1 Corinthians chapter one. Some of you are very familiar with this passage, but we need to remember why God chooses and who God chooses how he goes about making his choice and why he does it in the first place. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. This is one of those passages, Jake, I am so thankful for this. <laughs> I'm thankful for this being in ministry because he says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. Listen, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Let me pause right there and say, there better not be a one of us here this morning who says, I'm a Christian because I made that choice. Wait a minute, you're sounding awfully, awfully Calvinist, Rick. I'm just saying God wanted you. God chose you before the foundations of the world because he loved you that much. Hang with me here. By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us 
wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we sit back in our foolish, weak, base, despisedness, identifying with the old man, the old woman of last year, rather than the person we are right here and now today in Christ Jesus. Because by his doing, and I'm talking to believers, you are in Christ. It is not by your doing. It is not by your talents or abilities. It is by his doing. Go a little further with Paul. He says, when I came to you, this is Paul, right? Paul the impressive, Paul the missionary, Paul the apostle, Paul the awesome in my book. Well, in this book, he says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul would have been right at home at the spring of Herod. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And that's why with Gideon's men, it is so vital to recognize the choice was God's. It was not the lappers or the kneelers. It was not who showed themselves the best of the bunch or even the worst of the bunch. It was God said, I just need 300 and we're gonna go with these. This is my call. Remember what the Lord first said to Gideon. If you go back to chapter six, verse 14, it says the Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. And if you stop there, you might think, oh, so Gideon was strong. No, he says, have I not sent you? That's his strength. That's the power that Gideon wielded was that God sent him, that God called him. If you are in Christ this morning, that is your power. That's your power going forward is you have been sent by his choice. Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So to be a follower of Jesus is to be one who's been sent because he has chosen you to fight. Davis said in his commentary, we sometimes dupe ourselves into thinking that a real servant of Christ is only someone who's dynamic or assured, confident, brash, fearless, witty, adventuresome, or glamorous. Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk, strengthens their hands in the oddest ways, and enables them to stand for him in school or work or home, that's God's choice. Man's choice is always different. We always look for the celebrity. We always look for the beauty, or so we think. We always look for the talent, and God is not looking for that. He's really just looking for someone who will say yes. The Hebrew pastor, after naming some of the guardians, uh, Gideon and others, naming several of them, describes them in this way. Maybe you missed this. Hebrews 11.34, he says, from weakness were made strong and became mighty in war. Oh, wait, but, but they're on the list, Hebrews 11, of the hall of the faithful. Yeah, and from weakness, they were made strong. Your faithfulness, allows God's strength to work in you, makes you strong. You're not strong because, ah, I just, I got big faith. You're strong because the Lord has made you that way. Second thing we learn at the spring of trembling, not only that God chooses whom he uses, number two, the staging and the victory are for his glory. That is the setup and the follow through. It's all about the glory of God. It is his choice. He chooses whom he uses, again, whether oblivious kneelers or yalocking mutts, so that the victory will bring glory to his name. Isaiah 48, 11, he says, for my own sake. Then he repeats it. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. 
Jesus said in John 8, 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. The glory of Jesus happens to be the glory of God. Jesus being God. Philippians 2.10 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. And by the way, yes, it is all about his glory. That's the end game. That's the whole point, the glory of God. But listen to me, his glory is all the better for the mutts and the clueless ones. For those who would say, oh, well, that's kind of arrogant. You know, it's all about God's glory. His glory is better for you. His glory in you and upon you, it, it works best for you and for me. Now, if Gideon was counting back in our story, he'd know they went from four to one odds to 14 to one odds to now 450 to one odds. That's what they're facing here. A 99% reduction in forces and God likes these odds. Think about it, 450 to one. Is there another Bible story where we see the same kind of odds applied? Up on Mount Carmel, there's a prophet named Elijah, and he faced off against 450 prophets of Baal. So these numbers are good numbers. By the way, the Midianites that, that Gideon now faces were big time Baal worshipers. And their influence in the land was sickening and was infectious, infecting even Israelites. Verse nine. Now the same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, so now, you know, the camp that was 32,300, little 300 hanging out. It came about that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. Now, you could almost put a pause between verses nine and 10 because the Lord recognizes something in Gideon. He says, if you're afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. Was he fearful? Well, it says he went down with his servant to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. It's incredible odds. Listen to this. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Why does God send Gideon to go check that out? If you're fearful, I want you to get a little closer to the odds. I want you to see how bad it really is. You think it's bad now? I want you to go over there. Check it out. Go look at what you are up against. It must have looked impossible. But rather than judging the trembling of Gideon, rather than toying with him or playing with him, the Lord is about to encourage his heart. He's sitting, sending Gideon over there to hear this amazing dream. Because God is the great encourager. Isaiah 35, verse three says, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And for those who think that God is hard-hearted or heavy-handed, hang on a second. He says, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. That's the heart of God to encourage you, to build you up, to strengthen you, to, to make your faith stronger. That's what he wants to do. Why? Because that's his nature. That's how he functions. He's the great encourager. Jesus Christ is the encouragement in our exhaustion. So if you're tired, go to Jesus. He is the strength in our trembling. So if you're anxious, go to Jesus. He is the courage in our fear. So if you're afraid, go to Jesus and recognize this about God. Davis says this, he is not so strict as to be harsh when we tremble. He does not ridicule us in our fears. He never mocks us because we are fragile. 
You know, the Bible says, Isaiah 42, verse three, a bruised reed, he will not break. A dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's our God. So he sends Gideon down. Verse 13 tells us, when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. You gotta get this scene. So he goes down, right? It's nighttime. The camp of the Midianites is spread out further than the eye could see in this valley. And he and Purah now come down to the foothills and they're, they're checking this out. They come to an outpost. It's dark. The enemies are there and they come perhaps behind a tent. Near enough, they can hear two foot soldiers of the Midianites talking. And one's relating a dream to the other. Maybe they're talking over a, a, a late night Arab blend coffee. I don't know. But he says, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. This is a weird dream. Verse 14, his friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. This is such an ironic plot point. What's taking place here, God speaks in the dreams of the enemy. God can speak however he wants. God can reach into your life and speak to you in a way that is very unexpected. Well, how do I know if it's him? Well, first of all, just test it against his word. I see that's the best way to know if it's God speaking because it's not the vessel through whom he speaks, it's the fact that he speaks and it's the truth that he speaks. That's, that's what we grab a hold of. He gives Gideon now insight into the enemy from the enemy. Now I was thinking about that and it hit me, you know what, we need to do a little more eavesdropping on the enemy's camp. We need to pay a little closer attention from time to time, not to compare or prepare strategies or battle tactics, that's not the point. You don't listen to the enemy to fight the enemy, but we often think that evil is just riding high on its victories and successes in this world. When the truth is in the camp of the enemy, number three in your notes, there is trembling. There is trembling in the camp of the enemy. You gotta get this down. Coming into this new year, the nation the way it is, the world the way it is, there is trembling in the enemy's camp. There is dread at the devil's HQ. Do you think he's familiar with the book of Revelation? Now, I'm certain he's read it through and through, and the reason I'm certain of it is he's tried to convince church people to stay out of it. It's too hard to understand. Stay away from the book of Revelation. That's not for you, and besides, it all just means God wins, blah, 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 so don't go there, because he knows what it says. It says things like, Revelation 12, verse 12, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he only has a short time. There is dread in the camp of the enemy. There is fear among demons. And here on the outskirts of the camp of Midian, now who's trembling? Now who's afraid? It's the enemy. But why is this victorious rampage represented by a loaf of barley bread? It's not because Gideon Barley had a fighting chance. You're welcome. And it's not that he was a loafer. <laughs> loaf of bread. The word barley, Hebrew for barley is seorah, and it is the bread of poverty. This is the bread of poor people. This is the cheapest grain you can get your hands on. Do you remember what Gideon said originally about himself? Judges 6.15, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. I'm the youngest of the least, and the word least there, dal, it literally translates poorest. Gideon was a poor man, the youngest of a poor family in all of Manasseh. Why would you send me? He's like a loaf of barley bread. He's the cheap stuff. 
You know what's really interesting to me? The dream is told, and this Midianite listening to it recognizes immediately who the loaf of barley was. How do you know that? He knew that it represented this indigent leader of Israel. How do you know that? I think, and this is just personal opinion, that it was a running joke, a slur among the Midianites. Gideon, that loaf of barley bread. We would say jokingly, he's barley a soldier at all. But they, I think, were probably calling him that. That poor. They knew he was poor. They had their information. They knew what they were fighting, and they knew their leader was this poor guy out of Manasseh. Come on, no military experience. He doesn't even know where to beat out wheat. <laughs> Loaf of barley bread. What a joke. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul said, therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, <laughs> then I am strong. And this barley bread is about to roll all over Midian. Verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. All right, add this to your list. Do you have a list? God chooses those whom he uses. The staging and the victory, they're all for God's glory. There is trembling in the enemy's camp. And number four, God inspires worship before warfare. Worship before warfare. We talk a lot about spiritual warfare around here. Worship before warfare. So this is what happens when faith catches up to the reality of God's coming deliverance. We worship. The moment Gideon believed that God was indeed going to deliver Israel, he had to immediately bust into worship. When we know that God is victorious, worship precedes the battle. Faith before the fight. Praising God before pulling out our fists. We worship first. This is such a vital thing to understand. Psalm 98, verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things, and his right hand and his holy arm have gained victory for him. By the way, his right hand is Jesus. Has gained the victory. So Gideon here worshiped. He didn't run back to camp and worship. So he's probably not worshiping out loud, I'm thinking. You know, Hava. I don't know why I'm into Jewish dance this morning. It's just kind of hitting me. Gideon starts worshiping right then and there. This is important to understand. He didn't strike up the band. He didn't count off the worship team. He just started worshiping God. Because the truest and best definition of worship is what happens in the heart. What, what comes out of the mouth, when, when we're singing on a Sunday morning, what comes out of your mouth, that, that's just evidence of what's going on in the heart. But I have learned not to judge because I recognize when we're singing, some are not singing at all. But I don't know where the heart is. And that's the truth of the matter. Worship's right here. Now that doesn't mean that next Sunday, y'all are gonna stop singing, please. <laughs> Because again, this is evidence of what's going on in your heart, but worship begins and flows from the heart. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Worship before warfare. Why? Because worship always strengthens faith. For those of you who have seen it, it's that old Alistair Begg quote. Don't Tell me how you feel. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you know. He, he, you, you gotta watch this. Look it up on YouTube. Alistair Begg talking about worship. You'll find it. It's like a five-minute clip. And he just goes off on, on worship bands and worship leaders that come out and are like, how y'all feeling? And he says, how am I feeling? Like a wretch. Don't ask me how I'm feeling. Ask me what I know. That builds the faith. Then I can start to feel better. Then I can start to feel the way I'm, then my feelings get aligned with the truth. 
Worship in the heart is based in the truth of who God is. It strengthens our faith. It develops peace before the first shot is fired. Rest in us before the battle is engaged. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. How? Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. I love that song. I don't think we've ever done that at the bridge before. We will again. Singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Why? Because God chooses whom he uses. The victory is for his glory. Trembling is there in the enemy's camp. It's worship before warfare. And one more thing. One more thing. Again, after worshiping right then and there. And what did that even look like? I mean, was getting like, but he was worshiping the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In silence, at the enemy's outpost, verse 15 concludes, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. That is a statement of great faith. Gideon's 300 have been given Midian's 135,000. The Lord has given them. It's done. This is done. From here on out, it's cleanup. It's the mop-up process. Note this in your notes. Number five, God stacks the odds against you. God stacks the odds against us. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Are you kidding me? 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Let me ask you a question. Why does he do it this way? Why is it that God as it were, sets us up, stacks the odds against us so that we are standing before what sometimes seems like an insurmountable problem. How can I possibly conquer this, get over this, have victory in this situation? This is way beyond me. And he's like, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Why this underdog process? Get this, number six. While God gets the glory we get the faith. God gets the glory, we get the faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11, verse one. He gets the glory, we get the faith. We start to trust like we never trusted before. And please hear me, faith is not about contingency plans, risk management, or emergency backup systems. Faith doesn't depend on any of this. I didn't entitle, by the way, this teaching, uh, New Year's Day teaching, never tell God the odds. It's never tell me the odds. Because I'm the one who's standing here. I'm the one who's called upon to have faith, to trust in the Lord. In the character of Han Solo, never tell me the odds is just brash recklessness. He had nothing to base it on. Good luck, Han. And in the real world, the first asteroid would have taken him out. We walk by faith. And so it doesn't make any difference whether the odds are four to one, 14 to one, 450 to one, or completely immeasurable in fact. Romans 8 verse 31 says, what shall we say then to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 35, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, 
persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm not going to stop there. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present. By the way, that's anything going on in your life right now. Nor things to come. That's what you don't expect. It's just around the corner in 2023 nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hey, 2023 may not be better than 2022. That's just wisdom. But our faith is not in the new year. Our faith is not in what is to come that is in this life. It's not in the coming year, it's in the coming Christ who says to you and says to me, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Until then, never tell me the odds. The Lord has given the camp of the enemy into your hands. Let's stand together. Let's stand together.